Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, everyone. This is Raul Pal, the CEO and co-founder of Real Vision, and welcome to my podcast. Every week, I'm lucky enough to speak to tons of smart and innovative people in the financial game. I get so much insight from these conversations, and that's why I wanted to start this podcast, so I can share that knowledge with you. I hope you learn from the discussions, and you can always find more in-depth content at realvision.com. Enjoy the show. Dan Moorhead, as ever, great to see you, my friend. Great to see you. So look, there's a lot to unpack as ever, but as ever, we're both macro guys at heart, so give us your macro backdrop, because I think it differs from mine, but I really want to hear it. Oh, yeah. So you and I have been doing this through a lot of cycles. (laughs) This is the biggest, wildest one ever, right? Like, I think we're all having a failure of imagination here that uh, for 42 years, the Fed's just kind of bailed everything out, right? Like, no matter what problem we had on Earth, they just cut rates or then they buy bonds or then they buy nine trillion of bonds. And it just kind of bailed everything out. We were in a 42-year rally in bonds, Rates coming down gave us a long rally in equities, a long rally in real estate, all that stuff. And I think the Fed's really overcooked it here. You know, they really overdid it. Rates way too low on the short end. And a lot of people are starting to get their head around that one. The thing no one's really talking about is their purchase of $9 trillion of mortgages has totally messed everything up. And I just, unfortunately, I don't see us unwinding this thing without housing going down. And without the Fed unwinding some of that nine trillion, so there's just a lot going on. And in 35 years of doing this, is the most extreme, in my opinion, policy error I've ever seen. And so the pendulum swung way one direction. Unfortunately, it's probably got to swing way back. That's the macro view. Obviously, hopefully, crypto could be isolated from that. But on the macro side, you know, I think we're going to have rates go way higher, way longer than anyone else is really talking about. So you don't think. So, I mean, I reasonably differ on this. I kind of think that the monetary conditions that the market price via mortgages, the, the rate of change of the dollar, interest rates overall, um, plus commodity prices was a massive tightening of financial conditions. Do you see that? Or do you still think conditions aren't tight enough to engineer lower inflation? Oh, not even close uh, to tight enough. And the reason I say that is, although you know we're so used to rates always coming down, that the Fed raising 150 basis points sounds super edgy. It's nothing, right? Uh, real inflation's double digits. Um, we've never had Fed funds so far below inflation in the history of our country. Um, so, you know, whatever tightening's already happened, it's a very small amount. And the, you know, the the sad truth is, inflation's risen as fast as the Fed's tightened. So we really haven't uh, tightened uh, real rates at all. And um, even the Fed's own model, if, if, if one of your readers wants to look at the FOMC statement that just came out at the latest meeting, has they have five or six different uh, models for where rates should be. You know, the Taylor rule and amended Taylor rule and a bunch of other ones. They're all like six or seven percent. 
And everyone's like, oh, well, cool, we're at 150 or whatever. So we're just so far from where we would need to be to stop inflation that, you know, I really think people are, are just kind of struggling to get their head around. In December, we forecast Fed funds going to 5% and the time seems super crazy. And now they have cuts already priced into next year, you know, which I, I mean, I wish it were true. I, I wish that would happen. But I just, you know, deep down, I don't think it's true. Yeah, my issue is I look at real rates and real rates have been trending lower for the last five year real rates, let's say. They've been trending lower for the last 20 years. And the trend rate of real rates, if I stick it on my Bloomberg and put a nice regression channel is, is negative 1%. And every time we get to the top of the like two standard deviations of real rates, we break everything. So how are we going to not break everything and cause the Fed to do the same again? Yeah, well, that's the problem. I think we probably will break a lot of things, or at least the Fed is going to break a lot of things. I don't, I don't hold you or me responsible for it. But uh, so your trend would be great if you were looking at a graph of free market actors. You're not. The Fed has been manipulating the bond market, unfortunately, now twice big time. So for the first 95 years of the Fed's history, they only did the overnight rate. They never manipulated the capital allocation of our economy. In 2008, they decided, oh, you know, we're really not doing enough with our forward guidance, which is a whole nother topic. So instead of just saying we're going to keep rates low for a long time, let's just ram 10-year rates much lower. Not sure if that worked very well, but they did it 10 times bigger in this last um, recession. And they ended up buying $9 trillion of bonds. And to, and to put that in perspective, the entire record mortgage issuance in the United States is only $1.6 trillion, right? They did four times the entire mortgage origination of the entire United States in bond purchases. So your graph is kind of like old-fashioned econ 101. We're like, oh, we're all economically rational, independent actors. We're not. There's an actor that is massive that is, uh, you know, got different incentive functions. You know, you can all speculate on why. So I'm going to ask the painful question, is why is betting against this not the widow maker trade of betting against JGBs? Oh, because great. Oh, <laughs> we've seen this before. <laughs> we've all argued this, who we're blue in the face, and we've all lost money trading that trade. So talk, why, why is this different to JGBs? Yeah, so, you know, I used to say back in the day, um, you know, shorting JGBs has killed more white men than Sitting Bull, right? Like, it's just, it's a savage trade. And I, I worked in Japan. Uh, I, you know, worked in hedge funds, you know, in uh, Tiger Management. You know, we're always trying to short. Everybody wants to short JGBs. The thing everyone forgot, Japan's the world's largest net creditor. Like, Japan as a country is an incredible saver and investor. They have some imbalances. The government borrows a lot. The households save a lot. But net-net as a little island or planet is an amazingly uh, rich and wealthy country with lots of savings. So those don't go bankrupt and they don't have high rates because they have excess capital, right? They export it to the U.S. and other places. U.S. is not like that. U.S. borrows all their money from other people like the Chinese government or, you know, the Russian government or uh, Japanese individual savers, right? So the U.S. has a massive current account deficit, massive net debt to the rest of the world. So they actually care where rates are. But they have a little trick, though. The U.S. Yeah. has the other little trick up the sleeve that nobody else has, which is they're the world's reserve currency. 
so they can kind of do what they want as well. Oh, yeah. No, and I'll admit that's true. And, you know, the U.S. has gotten incredible uh, benefits out of being the world's reserve currency. I would imagine that we have seen a peak in the reserve status of the U.S. dollar for a lot of different reasons. The most obvious of which is after the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, governments saw that, wow, hmm, you know, people can cancel reserves if they want to. And so... You know, that was like think, Cy- that was like the Cyprus situation at sovereign level. Yeah, oh, yeah. and and um, you know I think it's going to take three or four years, but that will filter into uh, the blockchain industry, and there's going to be governments that say, "Hey, you know, I'd rather have some of our reserves. I'm not going to say 100, percent but you know, like five percent or whatever in Bitcoin, right?" And it hasn't happened yet, but I think it is going to happen. And going back to the, like, why isn't this the JGB trade? is if you short 10 JGBs at 2% yield and they keep over and over, it's at zero for 10 years, you will lose 200 basis points. That's the way bond math works, right? And that's why I like being a bond trader back in the day, because if you're right on the path of rates, you win. It is just math. So uh, my thought here is if you're shorting, you know, 10-year notes at two and three quarters, whatever, and Fed funds have to go to five or six and they stay there for 10 years, you win, right? You have to make money. And, which is very different than currencies that you and I have done, traded all these years. You can kind of be right in your theory forever and not make money. You know, like <laughs> rate FX doesn't have to go where you and I think it should go. But if you short a bond at two and three quarters and you uh, get paid 5% for the next 10 years, you get to keep the difference. It's just that uh, mathematical. So I do think shorting bonds here is a great trade because the downside is pretty limited. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. So look, you and I could talk macro all day, and with a glass of wine, we could talk macro all night as well. But let's talk crypto as well now. So how does this macro framework, which sounds like either inflationary or a certain amount of monetary tightness that we're not used to, how does that work in the crypto market? How does that flow through? Yeah. So when the Fed and the Congress started printing just you know insane amounts of money, I will admit I had my pom-poms and I was like, this is awesome for Bitcoin. You gotta own Bitcoin. And you know, Bitcoin's at 3,000 or whatever at the time, you know, to 60,000. So huge fan of that story. So some people say, well, it's totally counterintuitive if they're going the other way now, that's gonna be horrible for crypto. And I really Although, admittedly, I was hugely positive on Bitcoin because they were printing tons of money. They've already printed all that money. It's out there, right? There's $9 trillion of bonds that have been printed and out there. And that money's not going away, probably, right? Like, I don't think they're going to sell all those bonds and take all that money out of the system. It, I actually think they should, but I just don't think they will. So all the money's already out there. So it will still keep sloshing around and generating inflation. And there's this huge debate right now, is Bitcoin really a good inflation hedge or not? We don't know because we haven't had inflation for 15 years, right? We're going to find out. I actually think we're going to find out it is a great inflation hedge that when people are worried about the currency being debased 10% a year, 
you know, we'll start looking for alternatives. And that used to be countries like Argentina or you know, Venezuela or whatever. Now it's going to be American citizens. It's going to be British citizens. It's going to be Europeans. All are going to be looking for ways to get protected on the debasement of, of their currency. And although recently crypto has been highly correlated with risk assets like the S&P, I'm betting that it's going to break down, you know, that there are going to be more people going, huh, if rates do keep rising for the next two or three years, I don't want to own bonds, definitely. Probably don't want to own stocks. You know, the Fed really has to get real estate to go down before inflation stops. So I, I got to get out of real estate. Crypto and gold and soft commodities, you know, kind of the only things left, or art, maybe, you know, you know, intellectual property. You know, there's a few things that are kind of different from rates, but not many. And so I think, you know, crypto being one of the biggest and most interesting will start to get uh, the marginal dollar being allocated to crypto. It's also an interesting point in time. Um, I'm actually expecting a faster slowdown and actually I think rates back off. But either way, we're kind of record oversold versus every metric for the space. You know, even simple stuff like RSIs are the lowest they've ever been, you know, on-chain metrics, everything. So either way, it feels like the risk-reward in crypto at these levels is really bloody good. So let's say it hasn't bottomed. Maybe I'm wrong. I think it's bottomed, but let's say it hasn't. Let's say it goes down another 30%, 40%, 50 Let's say use 50% for easy maths because that's the kind of move crypto does when it feels like it. The upside is 10x from here, at least. So the risk-reward at these levels becomes ludicrous, which people don't understand that these network adoption models, whenever you're kind of dramatically oversold, your risk-reward explodes in ways that doesn't exist elsewhere. How are you thinking through this? Well, you mentioned drinking some wine, but I think we're drinking the same Kool-Aid because I totally agree that crypto's gone through these wild cycles, as you know, and sometimes it is kind of bubbly and overbought, and sometimes it's really inexpensive. And I, I, I literally think right now is the most compelling, even value-oriented time I've seen in 10 years of doing this, right? There were some times it was the same price as it is today, but we were four or five years back in history with, you know, hundreds of millions less using it and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and so I think given that we've had a 75% fall in Bitcoin you know, 80, 90, and some of the other things, we're really at incredibly cheap levels. And, and a couple of metrics on that, we've never had a period that Bitcoin's at the same price it was four and a half years ago before. It is. So it's right where it was in 2017. And I got to tell you, like, nothing was is built out in 2017 as it is today, right? We have so much more stuff happening, so many more people using it, all that so uh, just on a fundamental basis, you know, it, it's better than it used to be, uh, you know, back in that era. And uh, just a great metric for how cheap things have become. All of DeFi, $8 billion. That's crazy, right? We can complain about all of this about DeFi is only people speculating. Whatever. To be only $8 billion when the financial, the legacy financial uh, industry is $2 trillion, is just cheap. And like you said, it's very asymmetric, right? Say you buy all of DeFi and you pay $8 billion, right? You can only be down $8 billion. You might be up, you know, uh, 10, 20x on that. Uh, and I really do think we're at that level. We're so inexpensive on most tokens that the risk reward is fantastic. Obviously, it could keep going down. It could go down for another year or whatever. But it just doesn't feel like when you do an expected value type calculation, you can't, you know, it just seems like you're going to come up with a great time to be invested. 
Well, what's interesting is I see a lot of people who've been in the space maybe for the last cycle, the cycle before, and they're kind of well-known now, and they're so scarred by the last cycle that they can't conceive that it could be different this time around. You know, I look at this and, you know, we've got the ETH merge, which we'll talk about. We've got significant potential catalysts around. And all I know is everybody's underweight again. Every hedge fund I speak to, every family office, every institution, they're underweight. And I'm like, and you and I know this, the path of most pain is usually where markets go. And I'm thinking, well, probabilistically speaking, it's up, not down, because everybody's expecting a new low. I can buy Bitcoin at 15,000. That's the kind of narrative. How, how do you think about the kind of upside, downside risk reward here? Oh, I agree. The best time to buy is when there's a whole cottage industry of people predicting how the next 50% downdraft's going to happen. You know, <laughs> I see that all the time in research and, and everywhere talking about the next shoe to drop or the next whatever, or the next Celsius or the next, you know, like, no. That would have been really useful at 65,000, right? If somebody had said, hey, the market's probably going to go down 75% in the next four months. That would have been great research. Nobody was saying that. Everybody's massively bullish at 65,000. And now that we're, you know, at 20,000, people are all like, oh, it's, you know, we got another 50% to go or it's, you know, Fibonacci hits 11,000 or whatever. That, that's the best time to buy when everyone's now an expert on bear markets. There was even a conference session recently about like the best short strategies of like no it's terrible let's get short in a 75 percent hole right uh, and again no one was saying that at the highs and to my mind that you know that's a great sign that it's time also you know time itself heals a lot of wounds right like whatever leverage people had whatever distress they were in it's been eight months since we were at the highs right that just stuff gets worked out over that period of time we're already well past the average length of a bear market or had the same depth, you know, like it just kind of, you and I know you can take pain for so long and then you have to, you know, give in. And just, there's a period of time that markets just can't go down that much longer, you know, cause people, you know, just everyone finally has given in. And I think we're at that point, you know, that we've, we've been down for eight months. You know, it's, it's very easy for me to see the low having already been put in in June, and, you know, we're kind of back to the next cycle. So, look, you've been around this for a long time, and a lot of people haven't. Talk me through the psychology of each cycle that you've been through, how it's different, and how people need to deal with it. Because it's actually, we kind of flippantly say things like, yeah, we've been around, we've seen this before, but a lot of people haven't. And they don't really want to know what it means to accept volatility because it's a feature, not a benefit, because that's why you get the upside. People don't understand that. So talk, talk us through some of this to give people some help in this. Yeah, I, I really think that is useful. Is I've been through about four of these cycles in the last 10 years, and I was sweating it in some of the previous ones. I was like, man, you know, blockchain might not work. You know, maybe they'll outlaw Bitcoin or, you know, maybe there's a flaw in the code and we're all screwed. You know, there was just so many worries in these past cycles. And, I, you know, I lived it viscerally, you know, uh, getting in and then it all goes down 80%. And uh, what I would say is this time it is really, really a different vibe. You know, there's hundreds of millions of people using it. You know, 10% of all US to Mexico remittance is going over Bitcoin. You know, there's a lot of people really counting on it. It's really a real system. And then even the risks, you know, back in the day, there were a lot of risks, you know, like, oh, maybe all the 
you know, custodians are going to get hacked. No, now it's like, you know, Fidelity and Intercontinental Exchange doing custody, right? Like, you know, Mount Goxier or whatever, that was, you know, some dicier times. So a lot of the things I used to worry about are gone. And even now when people are like, well, regulation could be horrible. It's like, well, you know, that's a glass one eighth empty kind of mentality, right? Seven eighths of the regulatory bodies in the U.S. have already ruled and it's great, right? Like we still have the SEC to rule. But like back then, you know, the IRS or FinCEN or whatever could have done something super horrible and they all did great stuff, right? So although it's not fun and obviously I love coming to work more when the markets are tripling every week rather than when they're down 80%, uh, I, I really, you know, for those people who are experiencing their first, you know, crypto winner, uh, I think this one's going to be less worrisome or less like impactful than the uh, previous ones were. Yeah, that's my hunch as well. How about when you're speaking to investors? Because some of them have been with you for a long time because you were one of the earliest funds in the space. But what are investors thinking now, whether it's the institutions or the family offices? And how are you seeing the breadth and change of investors? Because, you, you know, you must see a difference in who it was. Because in the beginning, it will have been a bunch of Silicon Valley people, some people who knew you, some hedge fund people. But then it starts developing to family offices, then institutions. So talk about that mix and how that's changing and also what they're thinking at this point. Are you getting inflows in or are people still like, well, let's wait and see? Yeah, so that has changed dramatically, as, as you rightly guessed. That in the early days, we did have a few institutions, but it was mainly kind of high net worth tech, Wall Street type people. Um, and it really has changed a lot in really the last 12 months or so. Massive public pension plans, uh, endowments, all those entities getting in. And this actually is a great time because they've spent four or five years working through all their issues, all their diligence, all their investment committee, educating their trustees, whatever it is. And they finally got a yes and now everything's pulled back and is actually a lot cheaper. And so um, we haven't seen enough people pull that trigger yet because I think most investors are really kind of triaging their portfolio, right? This has been a once in a generation shock on the macro markets and blockchain. So everyone's kind of pulling back, trying to make sure they understand, you know, their liquidity positions and all those things. But I do think uh, we're in a pretty good spot where a lot of institutions did just recently get an approval and in you know, many cases, you know, they allocated like 10 basis points to blockchain. You know, they're 100 billion or hundreds of billions, you know, under management, they, you know, 100 million or whatever in the blockchain. And so, you know, you and I have seen commodities become an asset class over the years, emerging markets, all those things. I, I easily can see blockchain being an asset class five years from now. 10 basis points isn't the answer, right? Like it's going to be 500 basis points or 800 basis points. It'd be some much bigger number. So that's another reason I'm really bullish on this space. I've seen a lot of massive entities go through the really hard thing of going from zero to one in terms of being on now. And now that they're on and they have 10 basis points, they could easily go to 20 basis points or 50 or 100 or 500, right? And so I think that's the story for the next 10 years is all these entities that have spent you know, many years getting to the point of saying yes to blockchain, ramping up to whatever a market neutral position will be 10 years from now. But it's, you know, it's a lot higher than it is today. And what about the allocation mix? Um, I've noticed that VC has obviously been easier to get through investment committee because it's like, it's just a tech VC investment. So people went there first and the hedge fund space or the secondary markets, the liquid markets have been 
pretty devoid of capital. I mean, it's, I mean, the entire hedge fund industry is $4 billion. Well, $60 billion went into VC in the last 18 months. I, you know, like you, I've been around markets for a long time. When markets are that starved of capital, it gives you outsized returns. Are you still seeing that people are still starting with VC? That's what they get their, their, their toes in the water and then coming through into, you know, more liquid token strategies. How, how are you seeing that evolution? We are. And, uh, you know, to some extent, I'll agree with your, you know, kind of implication that maybe that's wrong and that, you know, tokens are cheap and, you know, entities should, you know, invest in tokens. And that's why firms like Pantera and some of our competitors now have these kind of all-in-one 10-year venture style funds, but they also invest in tokens. And actually, I think those are really good for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, it allows the manager to allocate between the different sectors at various times in the cycle. And uh, private equity and tokens really reprice at an incredibly different frequency. Tokens are manic and they reprice like instantaneously. And the market can drop like 70% in like three weeks, which it just did. Whereas private equity is very slow moving, you know. All the entrepreneurs that, you know, heard their competitors raise money at, you know, January, February, March valuations, they have to go through the five stages of grief, right? Like they're still thinking about, you know, oh, my competitor raising four billion or five or whatever. They're still thinking about that number. And unfortunately, it takes like six to nine months for everybody to kind of work through that. And so it's kind of like the housing market. Like when there's some discontinuous drop in the housing market, most people don't cut their price 17% and start doing transactions. They leave their offer at the old price and no transactions happen. So the number of transactions goes you know, close to zero. And that's basically what we've seen in venture in our space is there were a lot of deals being done. This big thing happened in the global uh, macro markets and all the entrepreneurs still want the old prices. All the investors want the new down 40, 50, whatever the number is, valuation. And so there's just a gap and it's going to take six months for the both sides to kind of come together. Uh, but the, thing, the other bit of that, which I think is very, very important, is we have a Bitcoin fund that has daily liquidity, right? So if an institution invests and the market goes down 50 percent, you know, the investment committee could be tapping them on the shoulder like, hey, you know, you can submit your redemption of your money tomorrow, you know, and that might make people panic and sell at the lows. Whereas if you say, hey, we're just going to commit 10 basis points. We're going to lock it up for 10 years. We're probably going to go through five or six of these crazy cycles. But at the end, we'll probably have a lot more money. I actually think that's better, you know, because then the uh, institution doesn't have to kind of overtrade the, the, the position and like sell at the lows. And unfortunately, we've seen a lot of that over the last 10 years where people, you know, when uh, Bitcoin's on CNBC every day, they, they're buying at the highs. And then, you know, when it's just had a, uh, a crunch like now, nobody is allocating. And, you know, as you say, the outside returns come from allocating after a crunch rather than before it. Yeah, even in the exponential age, the um, the fund of funds and asset management business, we had a three-year lockup on the fund of funds for the same reason. I don't, I'm not a big fan of lockups, but people need to protect themselves from themselves in these volatile markets. You need a period of time, enough to allow you, you don't need, most of them have VC anyway, so they've got the long-term 10-year bet and they need the bulk of the cycle. But if you give people quarterly liquidity, they'll end up shooting themselves in the foot sometimes because people are often new to the space, so they're trying to figure it out. So I do believe in some of that. How are you looking at 
the risk curve now in crypto? Where where do you want to allocate? If we assume Bitcoin is zero risk, let's let's assume you're 100% invested. Let's assume Bitcoin is zero risk and everything else is extended beta or alpha over that. Where are you out in the risk curve if you look across you know, the portfolios that Joey's running or other stuff and where the clients are? Where do you think people are on the risk curve or you want to be on the risk curve, more importantly, for this part of the cycle? Because we both identified the return seems really skewed right now. So I'm preferring to get a bit further out of the risk curve. How about you? No, I agree. I agree. And I do think you can think of it like that. You know, Bitcoin's kind of like the treasury uh, equivalent of our space and everything is kind of a high beta to that. And in times of stress, Bitcoin does go down less than the micro caps or like whatever you want to call altcoins. Uh, but so Bitcoin does perform better. And so there was a period for a few months in May and June and July that we were way heavy on Bitcoin, uh, which is uh, not something we've been doing for the last few years. But I actually think we're past the bottom, like you you also agree. And so if we're in a, at a minimum consolidation uh, level and potentially the new rally, which I actually think we're in, then it does pay to be out that risk curve, to be in, you know, Ethereum, DeFi, you know, uh, a bunch of other things. And so we've now taken our Bitcoin exposure way down. We're back in, you know, all the other sectors that can perform well if we're in a bull market. Obviously, you know, if we're wrong and, and we you know, have another leg down, we're going to be wishing we were all in Bitcoin. But uh, the other things have a high beta, basically. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm getting really interested in the ETH merge and not for the reasons people understand, but a reason that you will understand. So the ETH merge, we get it. There's a bunch of supply things and it's going to have a yield. Great, right? So now I'm thinking, okay, I know where this goes. We now have a benchmark Web3 asset that has a yield that is not a negotiable yield. It's kind of baked in. So we kind of know what it is. So it has certainty. And most of the institutions, for example, never owned gold because it didn't have a yield. And most tech assets don't have a yield. So here we've got a tech Metcalfe's Law growth asset with, call it a 5% yield. We don't know what it's going to come out with, you know, six months after the merge, but let's assume it's 5%. That is an extraordinary thing for adoption for institutions. But even that's not the most interesting thing. Everything in the world is priced off treasuries. All emerging markets are treasury, you know, but, you know, treasuries plus 400 and everything in the credit market. In fact, all rates are priced off treasuries or LIBOR. And one of the features of what just happened in the CFI market was the inability for people to price risk because they didn't know what yield was from what. If we have a benchmark rate, this is going to make a huge difference to not only retail investors, but how we run our portfolios. Because we can start thinking of credit spreads in a more sensible way and creating baskets of credit risk. I think it completely explodes the DeFi space. Because 
you'll remember from our days of the past, there used to be these guaranteed funds where, let's say, the FTSE used to give a 6% yield and or, or interest rates were 6%. So you could basically use the interest rate and the yield and buy call options or put options and have guaranteed funds and all of this shit. I'm like, people have no understanding how big this could be. The structure of markets may change here. Thoughts? No, I agree. It's a, both of those things are huge. Uh, the merge itself is very important. And then the fact that we will have you know, kind of a benchmark yield uh, to, to base off. And I would say that one of the reasons we got super excited about uh, ETH is the merge had been delayed for a long time, right? But what we've seen with uh, Ethereum is that whatever delays they've ha- had, when they actually picked a date, they always hit it. And so as soon as they picked a date, then we got very bullish because we think they're going to hit it and it's going to work well. So uh, if we do have a good yield basis to compare everything to, you know, I think it will foster more of a fixed income mentality. And you'll get a lot of money starting to flow in. And obviously, we're in very early days. There were some, you know, startup companies that, that weren't successful in pricing risk. Obviously, when you're pricing a levered market that goes down 75 to 90 percent, you know, there's a lot of bad things that can happen. So, uh, you know, it's not terribly surprising given the huge move, but, you know, we'll get there, you know, and then we're going to work through these iterations and the the centralized finance companies that did survive are getting even stronger. And there will be, you know, the ones that are still here five or 10 years from now. Yeah. I just think, you know, what we understand of the space, what we understand of DeFi, this $8 billion number you threw out is going to look ludicrous if we consider some of the foundation stones that are coming within yield markets and lending markets. I tell you, the other thing that uh, reminded me of the old days is we used to sell at Tiger in 98. Yeah. This whole three arrows capital thing was long-term capital all over again. I never forget that long-term capital time. I was a salesman at Gold- was that Goldman or maybe prior to Goldman is I was on a stag weekend in Ireland speaking to a bunch of mates who were all in financial markets. And we had the usual conversation, who's your biggest customer? Everybody was long-term capital. And I remember, you know, we were all in equity derivatives and, you know, we all had a few billion here or there. And then the head of Bund trading at Deutsche Bank, he's like, we've got $100 billion with these guys. And I went back to the risk manager and said, look, we need to do something about this. But when everybody, when one person's everybody's biggest customer, you need to be very careful. And that's what has just happened, really. One person became everybody's customer. Yeah, and uh, one opaque customer. Uh, and I think that's the moral of the story is that centralized finance still has the same old stuff that's you know been happening for 100 years. Is you know If you have an opaque centralized borrower, you know, they can either over-lever or even potentially, you know, misrepresent, you know, what position they have. I, I'm not sure here, but it's happened in the past. Whereas uh, DeFi, you know, it's the code. And if you agree to a smart contract, it's going to get executed. Everybody knows what the contract is. Everybody knows whether it got executed as per the contract. So uh, I really think that the moral of this story is not what the, you know, skeptics are promoting that DeFi didn't work and, you know, the blockchain's a failure. It's the opposite. It's all the old-fashioned centralized banking entities that are called Three Arrows or, you know, Celsius or whatever. But it's the same as long-term capital or Lehman Brothers or whatever. It's just, you know, taking short-term deposits, lend long, and hope nobody does a run on the bank. And And also what's interesting is a lot of the people who did struggle 
had less long-term financial experience. Yeah. You know, I think generally people who've been around kind of tend to be able to cry price credit risk because we've seen a few of these cycles and you understand how badly leverage can go wrong because we've all done it. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, hey, Darwinism works that, you know, if we're still trading after 35 years, we have survived a lot of these things, you know, because it's the same green fear, you know, markets go up because everybody gets greedy and then they go way too low because everybody's, uh, you know, panicking. So say human emotion has been driving markets for a long time. Always, always. And that's half the fun of trading is figuring out where the emotions lie. So final question for you. Again, I, I, I like to, you know, particularly in markets like this, give people learnings. What is the most stupid thing, mistake you've made investing in crypto? You know, honestly, selling anything. Like, uh, that is the thing to say at the lows that's here. Mine too. That's no, mine too. It really, like... Basically, there's a ton of things I wish I bought or, you know, regret not doing or whatever. But the only deep regrets are ever, you know, selling anything and and thinking, oh, maybe, you know, Bitcoin didn't work or that. Yeah. So uh, to the extent, you know, people have the financial and emotional resources to stay in the trade, you got to because it is going to change the world. And that means, you know, prices are going to be much higher in the long run. That's exactly mine. I sat down and went through my crypto journey from 2013 when I first bought it, Bitcoin at 200. And when I sold it in 2017 at like 2,500, thought I was a god, went up to 20,000, came back down. I didn't care. Then Dan Tapiero kept bugging me. I got back in in, in um, 2019, 2020 and, um, and, and sized up massively. And I went back and looked. If I just kept my original investment and not done all of this shit, trying to think I'm a great macro trader, I would have been much wealthier. And if I just bought the big dips with the same size investment to start with, that always looks really small when you add to it later, I'd have made 25x as much as I made. I'm like, it's the same thing. It's like, really? Just keep hold of it. Yeah, just view it as venture and try and put it away and look at it, you know, five or 10 years from now. Dan, as ever, a real pleasure to speak to you. A lot of fun as always. Hey, thanks so much. Yeah, all right. Take care, my friend. You see, macro is crypto, crypto is macro. But what's really interesting is Dan and I have opposing macro views, and yet we've come to the same conclusion about cryptocurrencies. And it's not based around our biases, but it's based around our analysis. So always interesting to hear Dan and his views. The biggest impact from this interview is hearing Dan's learnings of how to stay in the cycle. This is really important. His biggest regret was ever selling anything. He talked us through how he held on to tokens and how you need to embrace the volatility if you want to make the big returns. I think that is the biggest impact of all. Hi, thanks so much for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, I've got a free membership waiting for you. If you want to understand the future of everything, then understanding digital assets is the key. We're not ever going back to a pre-crypto world. Blockchain technology is transforming everything from communities to healthcare to real estate to, well, just about everything. That's why in 2020, we launched Real Vision Crypto, the world's premier cryptocurrency and digital asset video channel. Right now, Real Vision Crypto is helping more than 220,000 members understand the biggest wealth creation opportunities in a generation and maybe of all time. And Real Vision Crypto is completely free. To get your free membership to Real Vision Crypto, 
please visit www.realvisioncrypto.com. That's www.realvisioncrypto.com.